My name's Clifford Rosen. I'm an endocrinologist trained at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center and been practicing for 40 years in endocrinology. I'm also a bone biologist and run an independent NIH-sponsored laboratory at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. My affiliation is a professor at Tufts University School of Medicine. I'll be talking today about the guidelines for the treatment of postmenopausal osteoporosis that were produced by the Endocrine Society in collaboration with the Mayo Evidence-Based Review Group that provided the systematic review and meta-analysis for these guidelines. So you might wonder why we would produce guidelines at this time when there are a number of different therapies that are effective for the treatment of osteoporosis. And there are several reasons for it. The first is there's some confusion out there because of the multiplicity of drugs and their mechanisms of action in terms of what is the first-line therapy versus what are the other options available to an individual patient and to their provider in respect to the treatment and prevention of osteoporotic fractures. The guidelines provide a clearer roadmap for individual selection of what is most appropriate. In addition to that, there's been some recent advances. There have been two new drugs, both anabolic therapies that have recently been approved by the FDA and in the uh, European MA that provide further support for aggressive intervention in osteoporosis. And third, and most disconcerting, is that the use of anti-osteoporosis medications has dropped considerably over the last 10 years. And that can be traced to the concerns about atypical femoral fractures with the use of bisphosphonates or denosumab and the fear of both prescribing and taking these drugs. And the guidelines provide a reference point not just for the efficacy of these agents, but also for their safety. So at least three reasons why it's apparent that we need a document and a guideline to guide practitioner and patient selection. And I should mention there's also a fourth reason, and that is that the Endocrine Society is the authoritative guideline-generating society. We use systematic reviews and meta-analyses, so it's fully evidence-based, and this provides a frame of reference for individual choice in the practice of osteoporosis medicine. The guidelines themselves provide a rationale for the selection of therapies. There's really more information in there than what one would expect because, in part, the rationale for selecting a particular form of therapy requires a base knowledge of the evidence plus some degree of understanding the comparative effectiveness that is the relationship of the drug to other therapies for osteoporosis. I think that the key conclusions are that we want practitioners and patients to be more aware of the high-risk individual who really needs aggressive therapy relatively soon after an encounter with a provider, particularly if they've recently had a fracture. And one of the recent sets of data that has alarmed us, besides the fact that the prescribing of these medications has decreased, is that there is this notable confusion out there about what to use and when to use it. In part, this comes from other guidelines, from other societies that may not be evidence-based, and in part just comes from familiarity by the provider of what they have thought would be the best form of therapy. 
So the guidelines just go through the different therapies. No big surprises with the bisphosphonates or denosumab being the two drugs that many people think should be the first-line therapy for individuals at high risk or very high risk. And we support that conclusion. That's been noted in other guidelines. But we have added in those very high-risk individuals, those individuals who have had a fracture and also have very low bone density, less than a T-score minus 2.5, the feature that we like to highlight is the addition of either teriparatide or abaloparatide as a first-line form of therapy for those individuals who present with high risk for osteoporosis. And those are usually older individuals with very low bone density T-scores and have suffered a new or recent fracture that puts them at greater risk. And so that is probably the newest feature. We still strongly support the knowledge that bisphosphonates and denosumab are highly efficacious in clinical practice, they do reduce fractures. This is not just in clinical trials where it's very dramatic, but also among patients that use these drugs. There's no question that fracture risk is reduced, both spine and non-spine. So we have those powerful drugs, but as I mentioned earlier, there is this predilection for an increased risk for the rare complication of atypical femoral fractures. And hence, physician choice, provider choice, or patient choice looks for other available therapies that may have equivalency in terms of their effects on fracture risk. And that's why we added both teriparatide and orbaloparatide. And I should mention, because the guidelines are a dynamic working structure, I've just recently finished editing a update to the guidelines to add romososumab, which is a anti-sclerostin antibody that stimulates bone formation and was recently approved by the FDA as a one-year course of therapy, uh, monthly injections. And that has been added to the guidelines. So I think what we're trying to accomplish via the Endocrine Society is a working document that's constantly undergoing revisions as needed, especially with the newest data sets and adding the evidence about the anabolic therapies as first-line therapies. There is one additional component that people might not be aware of when they're reviewing the guidelines, and this is something that is not in some of the other guidelines, and that relates to patient choice and values, and we call it values and preferences, and we work through the meta-analysis group to understand the values and preferences of individuals as they initiate or continue on anti-osteoporosis therapy. And this is an extremely valuable uh, component of the guidelines because it outlines the three top priorities for patients. And we have to pay attention to that because it's not just that people are not prescribing these drugs, but it's also that the individual consumer or patient are not taking them. And that is in part something we want to understand better and we think we can with this systematic review of values and preferences for these osteoporosis treatments. So those are the notable new aspects of the guidelines and the continued use of agents that have been proven over the years to be both safe and effective. I think we still don't have as many comparative effectiveness trials as we should. The romososumab anabolic therapy that was recently approved had a one-year head-to-head trial with alendronate, 
And there, romososumab reduced fractures more than alendronate and, of course, had higher bone mass. But we don't have a lot of head-to-head clinical trials that are based on their comparative effectiveness. And so one limitation is trying to gain insights into how these drugs compare to each other by systematic review of the literature. But it's not nearly as good as evidence that we might gather by doing head-to-head trials, one drug versus the other in the same population. And that is a notable limitation. The other aspect that we're limited by, as I mentioned earlier, the values and preference is a unique and important aspect, but that's also garnered by data from the systematic reviews and not from a single trial where people are asked those specific questions. So there are quality of life questions, but the evidence from a randomized trial for just values and preferences really comes from very small data sets. So we'd like to know more about what people think when they're on this drug or on a combination of drugs. And I should point out that the other limitation that is not apparent on first inspection in the flow sheet that we use the diagram, the algorithm that we have employed, is there's no evidence-based information on combination therapy. And there are people who advocate the use of two drugs, two different types of drugs for the treatment of severe osteoporosis. We could not find a lot of strong evidence to support that, so it's not in the algorithm. But the possibility exists that a combination of Two types of drugs, one anabolic, one anti-resorptive, might have stronger anti-fracture efficacy. Now, we don't know that because the trial's not been done for fracture efficacy, but we do know based on bone density and the work of Ben Leader at the Mass General that there is some evidence that the combination of denosumab and periparatide may have a more significant impact on bone density. Whether it reduces fractures, more than that, unclear. Those are the limitations, but all these will inform future research, and it's undoubtedly the case that NIH and other funding agencies will actually look more closely at comparative effectiveness trials in osteoporosis. So I think the bottom line take-home message is we have drugs that are very effective in reducing fracture risk and preventing future osteoporotic fractures. Selecting the right agent is a combination of both the evidence in support of it from systematic reviews of clinical trials and the ability to do shared decision-making with your patients so that you come to the same conclusion that this one type of choice is the most appropriate for you. And so you can be guided through the guidelines in terms of understanding in a mechanistic way okay, so this person has high risk of osteoporosis, I'm going to do this, this, or this. But the guidelines also provide insights into why those therapies were chosen for the high-risk individuals or the low-risk individuals and what other options are available. So being able to show a patient that you have other options and that these have been spelled out in a systematic review of the evidence provides a little stronger support for enhancing compliance and adherence with the prescribed medications. I hope that the community really gets to appreciate that there is an art to the practice of medicine in osteoporosis, but there's also a lot of evidence that supports where we're at and what we recommend.
I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast, and I hope that I've spelled out the benefits of having a guideline, which took us four years to develop, and which is a dynamic tool and will constantly undergo examination and re-review.